Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I am Walt Hickey. I write Numlock. Joining us today is Caitlin Tiffany. She is a writer at The Atlantic and she's the author of the brand new book called Everything I Need, I Get From You. It's available wherever books are sold and tells the story of fangirls and the internet and the culture of the internet and how they all inform one another and how the internet would be absolutely unrecognizable without the fans and fanatics of, of music acts that uh, come on and fundamentally reshape the way that our social media works. It's a really great read. Uh, uh, you should definitely check it out. Again, available wherever books are sold. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's a really great interview. Thanks for listening. Hey, Caitlin, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming on. I'm great. Thank you for having me. So you are the author of the brand new book, Everything I Need, I Get From You. Uh, it is all about the intersection of fandom and internet culture and kind of how they each feed one another. I guess, uh, what got you interested in this topic? Yeah. Um, so I uh, was part of fandom myself, um, which is very obvious in the book. And well, not a secret, um, <laughs> but I, I spent a lot of time on Tumblr when I was like um, 19 and 20 and 21. Um, and then I moved to New York to start working in journalism. And I started working at a tech website that um, was just kind of getting into internet culture coverage. So it was sort of like um, the only thing I felt like I could contribute. I didn't know anything about tech. Uh, and as soon as they were talking about expanding their cultural coverage, I was like, well, I can do Tumblr. That's tech, right? It's the internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was kind of how I started reporting on fandom professionally. And then I guess um, later on, I knew that I wanted to do a book about fandom because I felt like there hadn't really, there was a lot of academic work about fandom already, but there hadn't really been, I felt like a satisfying, like non-academic sort of like popular press explanation of how fandom and internet culture were intertwined. And then it just made sense to do it through the lens of One Direction because that was where my like personal experience was. And it's just, it's really hard to like parachute into a fandom that you aren't a part of. Um, at the length and level of like detail that I wanted to do. It, I, I love that you took it from the point of one direction because I feel like they're also boy bands have this like habit of really dr dominating an entire conversation of fandom for a while. So you can almost yeah. trace different eras with them. And the era that one direction was like phenomenally popular was a super transformational one for the internet as a whole. Do you maybe want to kind of talk about one direction, their run and, and kind of where their role in I suppose the internet's fandom history. Yeah. Um, one of the academics I talked to for the book, um, Allison McCracken, actually asked her, like, um, you know, when did fandom start on Tumblr? Like, how did Tumblr become the fandom platform? And she said, it's like, it's three things that happened all at the same time, which is uh, Harry Potter, Glee, and One Direction. Um, those, like, three fandoms were huge in the early days of Tumblr. And I think really... Um, like Glee and One Direction in particular, I think really solidified the culture of like uh, the, the visual culture of fandom, the, the tradition of making really elaborate um, GIF sets um, and also of shipping. Shipping was huge, um, you know, for any anybody who doesn't know what that is. It's um, like fan fiction 
imaginative relationship pairings between characters. So that I was, want to get into that a little bit later too, because that's a huge part of this. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, on, totally. So that was huge with Glee fandom, and it was also big with One Direction fandom. Um, numerous famous pairings in One Direction <laughs> fandom. Um, and then with Twitter, I think like One Direction just kind of coincidentally came along at the same moment when teenagers and, uh, you know, younger than teenagers uh, were joining Twitter. Um, those were like really the first big years of Twitter having a youth culture. Um, so I think it was kind of the combination of those two things. And then also a sort of like underlooked part of the One Direction history, I think, is how much um, the YouTube algorithm was driving people to One Direction. I heard that from like so many people that I interviewed who started out as, you know, just watching like any whatever music video, pop music video and getting recommended the One Direction videos. And then crucially, like with One Direction, there was just like so much content that it was really easy to fall down a rabbit hole, if you will, of like once you got done watching all their music videos with another pop star, you'd be like, oh, well, that was fun, but there's nothing else to nothing else to look at right now. I guess I'll have to wait. But One Direction was like constantly putting out behind the scenes stuff on YouTube in a way that was like on a much quicker pace, I think, than other pop stars were up to that point. And also, um, you know, part of their allure was that they were like, just like really rambunctious and like kind of irreverent to the idea of marketing. Um, and it felt really like immediate and genuine and authentic, which was something people really um craved like the ability to connect directly or feel like they were connecting directly with celebrities at that time. Yeah. And like, I think that we got a ton of area to cover. The book is just so phenomenal. I thought it was really interesting because they felt like, you know, as a, like one of the bigger ideas of the internet now is parasocial relationships where you mm -hmm. fans feel that they have a specific relationship to an artist of various different degrees of fame. And it felt like they were just really, the first folks to really monetize that and, and capitalize on that and really engage with their fans to almost encourage that at times, uh, at mm -hmm. least at star level. Yeah. I like, I think it's, it's hard to know too, like how much of that was actually like deliberate and how much of that was just the fact that they were also teenagers and like also just kind <laughs> of wanted to be on Twitter and on, you know, on social media. Um, and I'm sure it was, I think it was like genuinely fun for them. Maybe not for their whole career. I think there's definitely a point where it became less fun for them. But at the beginning, I think like they were just like so shocked to be famous um, that they were like, yeah, let's record like to the front facing camera, like video diaries all the time. Why not? And like respond to people's tweets and like tweet about what kind of cereal we're eating for breakfast or like whatever. Like, why wouldn't we? Everyone loves it. <laughs> I loved how you really tie the development and the creation of internet culture to dominant musical acts at the time. I love the part that you wrote about the Grateful Dead and, and the early, <laughs> early internet. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, like the, the old days, so to speak, and, and what role music played in forming how internet subcultures form? Yeah. Well, so obviously that part of the book was um, not from firsthand experience. It was <laughs> from yeah. historical research because that was before I was allowed to use the internet or even knew what the internet was. I actually have <laughs> the book right behind me, um, The Virtual Community, which is the, oh history, <laughs> the history of the well, um, which is really fascinating and talks a lot about Grateful Dead fans and how, um, you know, in like the sort of 
early uh, like forums, the kind where you had to pay to use them because they had to pay for server space. Um, the most like enthusiastic participants in, in these early forums in California were Grateful Dead fans. Um, and one of the early operators of the well even said, like, I think that they were like kind of single-handedly keeping us afloat, like keeping us in the, uh, keeping us in the black or whatever. <laughs> um, and I thought that was really interesting. They're uh, the Grateful Dead fans are also huge and just like early online, like bulletin board culture. Um, and just kind of when I was doing the research for the book, just, it was really remarkable to see just like how every step of the way like each time something some new platform or some new use of the internet was created like the first people to really eagerly use it would be fans um and 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 often like music fans in particular um and i don't know exactly why that why that is but it, it it was pretty consistent and there was um nancy bame who um is a researcher and academic has a really great book called playing to the crowd uh that has has a lot of that uh history in it and i cite quite a bit in the book yeah it, it was it's again the fast so the well being an early bbs forum that folks i just like how like the very structure of the internet at times is like you just mentioned like informed directly by the music nerds and obsessed fans that immediately rush to it and, and really bear out its potential. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like platforms will create, you know, are kind of like take shape around fandom and, and ultimately end up like creating features or having to respond to fandom like Twitter. Um, I feel like it's funny to go back and kind of read the, the news coverage of how Twitter was dealing with fans in its early years in like 2009, 2010, because they were com- like completely like baffled by it, by its energy. <laughs> and it's sort of like, it's like, there's an odd tension there because these are like extremely enthusiastic and frequent users of their product. But they're also people who are like, tend to be kind of breaking the rules or breaking the features. Like they're trying to game the trending topics, they're uh, like circulating content to which they do not own copyright. Uh, <laughs> they are sometimes like, you know, harassing people. And so I feel like tw- Twitter was kind of like caught on its heels and had to like really uh, figure out like how do we keep fans on the platform, um, but also like make sure that it doesn't become like completely unusable for anybody who doesn't want to participate in fandom. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it definitely gets things very real for, for platforms very quickly. You can tell Mm -hmm. even, you know, even with like BTS and army, like they have really kind of, and you wrote it, leave it a little bit. There was an early story with Twitter that Justin Bieber, apocryphal story, I should say, was responsible for 3% of their traffic for a good while there. Um, It's just so interesting that, these are really fandom is so intense that even servers have trouble with it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, th- I think the Justin Bieber story was funny to me because like people, journalists who were writing about it kept saying like, there are specific servers in Twitter headquarters, <laughs> Justin Bieber tweets. And I was like, how would that work? <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, there's just one server. It's just got the it's got the song "Baby" on it. it just it's, it's a charge of playing that for anybody who listens. But, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. 
I do want to talk a little bit about how, like you mentioned that they played trending topics. They played the algorithm. You had some amazing stuff in there about how One Direction fans like attempted to play the billboard charts and attempted to do whatever was necessary to do that. Obviously, Numlock is a newsletter that loves data and, and the stories that kind of inform it. I love that part where it was all about how what, the lengths that a fandom will go to specifically exploit algorithms designed to rank what music is popular at the time. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so that was based on reporting that I did when I was at The Verge. Um, and I was kind of like just scrolling through my Tumblr feed being like, I got to find something to write about. Uh, <laughs> and came across like fans who were posting about um, like gifting iTunes singles, which was something that was really interesting to me in order to kind of like, I mean, it, it, there, the purposes of it was were like were several, but it was kind of like, whenever there's a new One Direction song coming out, or at the time, I think it was Harry Styles' first solo single, um, in order to boost the sales in hopes of, you know, getting giving, getting him better chart performance, and also in order to just kind of, um, you know, engage in kind of like a spirit of community, people would sign up to, like, gift the iTunes single to someone else because you can only buy it once yourself, but you can gift it and that that also counts as a sale. Um, but you can only gift to people who live in your country. So they made this elaborate system for like um, pairing people up in a spreadsheet. Like, oh, we got we got 30 people willing to give away <laughs> iTunes singles in Brazil. Like, are, do we have 30 people who will accept the gift? Like, you know, all of that stuff. Um and that was very elaborate. I was really intrigued by that. And then once I was sort of like asking people about that, they started to tell me about um, the other things they were doing to boost the single, which I just thought were so interesting. There's like the kind of obvious ones of like um, getting everybody in the fandom to just like blast radio requests on Twitter and whatever, um, or like Shazam the song over and over. So that's like <laughs> <laughs> uh, recommended in Shazam. And then the really interesting one was that in order to um, like, boost the song's positioning on um, American billboard charts, people who did not live in the U.S. would um, like download VPNs and basically like fake their Spotify streams that they would appear to be American Spotify streams. And I and I think a couple of other reporters asked like Spotify and Apple Music and other streaming platforms about their awareness of that kind of behavior. And they definitely did not give straight answers on like whether, (laughs) on like whether that would work or, um, and the billboard charts similarly were kind of vague about how they determine inauthentic activity. So I thought that was a fun story. I mean, obviously the number of fans who were participating was probably, was not high enough to really make a difference. And also just like the basic math of like how many times a person would even be able to stream the song in a day. Like it just didn't add up to the point where you were going to like really make a dent, but it was really just like funny and fun to see people trying. And, and I, I just thought it was really interesting that that became like kind of a ritual of like waiting for a single to come out, like preparing to put this giant machine in action. Um, Actually in the final like edits of the book, when it was read by a lawyer at FSG, she asked me to rephrase that section a little bit because it read too much (laughs) like an instruction manual. Uh, (laughs) I'm like, do those things. And I was like, I don't know if these things are illegal, but okay. (laughs) 
So, so for those who are interested, the book is called The Anarchist Cookbook for Fans. And it, it's like, <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. How to blow up a how to blow up a <laughs> Spotify code or whatever. Oh, so I, there's another I want to read uh again, it's a it's a really incredible book, folks, so check it out. Uh I, I would like to read my favorite two sentences from it and hear more about this. Uh One Direction fans' relationship with the entertainment industry is adversarial, but mostly because they think they could run it better. Literally. In 2015, there were two separate fan efforts to buy One Direction out of their record label contract. What on earth is happening there? <laughs> yeah, I can't say that I was personally involved in that effort, but um, <laughs> I think like that's like part of the fun thing about fandom is that I like there's like kind of things that people like walk around their lives, daily lives, like accepting as impossible and unrealistic. And then um, fans are so on the on the very edge between reality and fantasy that they, it would occur to them like, well, there's millions of us. Logically, if each of us gave a few dollars, we would have many, many millions of dollars. And we <laughs> could just like intercede in One Direction's career and like, and you know, I mean, I don't have any understanding of how their contract works and I'm sure <laughs> that these fans didn't either, but you can see how they got there. Uh, that's incredible. Um, I love how also, again, like you talk about like, again, some of the mechanics of fandom, you talk about how you they grow fandom and how some of the platforms can encourage fandom. I also just really like how you really dive into some of, especially in the later book, the nature of obsession and not like we talk about conspiracy theories and fandom a lot, but th this, in this specific case, there were a ton circling around this. It's not the first time we're all familiar with like Paul is dead of the Beatles and whatnot, but like, why do you yeah. think fandom lends itself so inextricably to conspiracy theories and things like that? I think part of it is that like, if you are paying such close attention to something over such an extended period of time, like you're going to start to notice things that seem to be important or seem to be overlooked um, that, and like pull them out, especially like in internet fandom, like, and especially on Tumblr, there is sort of an incentive to be the one to notice something that other fans didn't notice yet. And I think we saw that a lot in the conspiracy theories around One Direction, um, which, like, just to clarify, sort of started with this theory that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson, two members of the band, were secretly gay and secretly in love and secretly being, like, forcibly closeted by their management. And I think when it started out, a lot of people were really into it. And it was it was like, fun and totally harmless um and then later it took a little bit of a darker turn just because of kind of the extent that people went to to defend it which involved a lot of like misogynistic vitriol around um the women that either one of them were dating at the time and then sort of most darkly when louis tomlinson became a father there they um you know a lot of fans became convinced that at first that the baby was a doll and then later that it was either a hired actor or um, the child of, of uh, the stepfather of the woman who, uh, who Tomlinson had been dating and who was his uh, co-parent. So that obviously was over a line for some people. It didn't feel over a line for others. And I think like once you kind of cross that line, you can go down some interesting routes, but, but to return to the question of like why fandom lends itself to that, I think um, 
fandom is also kind of like in opposition to mainstream media a lot of the time. Mm. Um, the Larry Stylinson community was very defensive about any kind of media attention. And, um, and with internet fandom in particular, and with One Direction even more so, there is just so much to look at and to wade through and so much like evidence and proof that you can find. I mean, I think this is kind of something people bring up when they talk about all kinds of internet conspiracy theorizing, including like QAnon or whatever else. Not that I think that there are really a lot of powerful similarities between Larry Stylinson and QAnon, but like part of why people get involved in that is because it feels like anybody can participate, anybody can find something, anybody could like be the one to have an important discovery um, and kind of like get clout within the community. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. And and yeah, I mean, like maybe fandom also does tend to attract people who are missing some other forms of um, affirmation or stimulation in their life. And they can dedicate a lot of time to thinking about that stuff. Yeah, I mean, even like the title of the book, Everything I Need From Get From You is a... Uh, is a fairly direct articulation of that. I also want to talk a little bit about like getting to the more innocuous side of some of that. Um, I, the fan fiction component just really can't be ignored. And it, fan fiction obviously has a fairly long history, particularly obviously about fictional characters, but mm-hmm. it seems unique that, you know, particularly with one direction, like this was a situation in which people and fans were writing fan fiction about actual human beings mm-hmm. to an extent that also now exists in other fandoms, but this felt like a f- kind of significant, change in what fan fiction had been can you expand a little bit on that yeah so real person fan fiction or rpf um i think has always been a part of fandom but it was a much more secretive part of fandom for a long time there was a pretty powerful taboo against it i would say because a lot of fans um were like sort of rightfully concerned that um you know outside eyes looking in on fandom are going to judge whatever they're doing as like unhealthy and pathological and that writing about real people would attract a lot of negative attention. So there was real person fan fiction, notably um, in the Beatles fandom, uh, but a lot of that was disseminated only like via letters. And then later real person fan fiction would have been disseminated mostly in like private email listservs. It was like pretty uncommon for it to just be published for for broad consumption, especially in the early aughts, because um, platforms like fanfiction.net and then later um, LiveJournal put a lot of uh, like content moderation guidelines and limitations on that kind of writing um, and prohibited some of it. So part of the reason that like One Direction was a turning point for real, for real person fic was just that uh, Tumblr was a turning point for real person fic. Um, that was where a lot of fans went when they left other fan fiction writing platforms because of the limitations. And they all kind of arrived on Tumblr. And that's part of that's another reason why it became the fandom platform. But um, I think that's also that's another reason why the Larry Stylinson story is kind of sad because people who were writing about Larry Stylinson in their fiction, um, I think a lot of them kind of felt like you guys have ruined this by turning it into a conspiracy theory that kind of like embarrasses the whole fandom and makes it look like what we're doing is the same thing as what you're doing. 
Yeah, and it is also gone somewhat mainstream, as in as much as as fan fiction can be mainstream. But it's just like even Dream SMP, I believe. Again, that's a little bit out of my expertise, but that's a fairly large. Like it's about real people. And if you looked at the Ao3 uh, fan works from from last year, it was like you you do see BTS show up on that, and those are real yeah. actual human beings. And so I don't yeah. know. It does seem like it's gone rather mainstream, even if it was fairly taboo at one point. Yeah, totally. I, um, for a while, was following a lot of, like, uh, shipping blogs for, like, women's of the, or w- women from the U.S. women's national team, soccer players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that was, that was, like, really interesting to see, I thought. It was, like, I didn't even, I didn't realize people did RPF, like, slash fic about sports stars. Wow. Um, so I guess just kind of backing out a little bit, what's something that you really learned about fandom that you didn't know going into reporting out the book? Uh, um, I guess, I, I mean, it was just really fun and interesting to talk to fans about like what they got out of fandom. And I found it like really striking just how interesting and different they all were. And like, not that, I, I guess not that that was surprising in itself, but it was surprising how easy it was to get there. You know, like part of what I talk about in the beginning of the book is this like trope or this like image of people have of like a screaming fangirl and that image is obviously based in reality and like people do go to the concerts and scream but it was just it was really interesting to me and exciting that you can like approach someone who like ostensibly is that and ask them like one question and they will tell you like (laughs) so many interesting things about like what fandom means to them like sort of uh their positive and negative experiences um, how their relationship to fandom has changed as they've gotten older and, and all of that was, was super interesting. And I, like that, that part was really fun to hear about girls who like, like me cared about this thing, like a lot, uh, eight, nine years ago, but like still are thinking through their relationship to it now as adults. That's what would you say your relationship is to it now? Um, I mean, it's definitely, like, different than it was when I was on Tumblr all the time, and One Direction doesn't exist anymore, so it's different (laughs) for that reason, too. Um, But I, like, I still get really excited about whatever um, Harry Styles is doing, whatever Niall Horan is doing. He's actually my favorite member of One Direction. (laughs) Um, And that's, like, a way of kind of, like, breaking up monotony uh of being an adult or uh I guess just like a way of thinking about how my own identity has changed um I I mean I was working on the book during the pandemic so I did a lot of just like sitting in my apartment kind of like reliving being 19 and being on the internet all the time looking at one direction stuff (laughs) and that definitely got a little weird at times but (laughs) but it was also really fun that's amazing. Uh, the book is really fun. I, I enjoyed every word of it. It's called Everything I Need I Get From You. Um, Caitlin, where can folks find you and where can folks find the book? Um, I'm on Twitter at K-A-I-T underscore Tiffany. Um, or I'm also on The Atlantic, uh, you know, under my author page. <laughs> um, and the book, uh, you can find pretty much anywhere, I think. I mean, I usually share the bookshop.org link because I think they're cool. And then I do not have not used Amazon in five years. So <laughs> don't use Amazon. I mean, don't tell Amazon. 
don't tell Amazon I said that. If you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or if you want, maybe access it through a VPN and then just stream it constantly to get it up. Yeah. Charts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That'd be great. <laughs> well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks again for listening. The book is Everything I Need I Get From You. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thanks so much to Caitlin for coming on. Thank you for listening. Thank you to JT Fails for the use of our theme song. If you enjoy this, leave a rating. And uh, thanks. Thanks.